we pray that we will be those who hear your voice. And like Peter, once we've heard it, may our lives be transformed as a result. For we ask it in Jesus' name, your beloved. Amen. It's lovely to be here this morning. Thank you for your welcome. Um, as Archdeacon, I do get to go around quite a lot of the different churches from time to time, so it, it's nice that this is a place where I feel I can just, with Will's permission, just sneak in at the back sometimes and just receive when I'm not somewhere else. So it feels a reasonably familiar place, even though I'm normally sitting somewhere at the back if I'm here. It's lovely to be with you. And it was good to hear the definition of an Archdeacon. Um, when I was interviewed for the role three and a half years ago, nearly four years ago, <clears throat> the interview panel asked me the most obvious question in the world, which was, what does an archdeacon do? And you know those moments when you, your brain just goes to pieces and you can't think of a single thing? I had, I had one of those moments at that point, but I clearly recovered because they gave me the job in the end. So anyway. I've been um, a Christian most of my life. I was brought up in a Christian family and I've been going to church since I was a baby. And yet... I was delighted to see the title of the series, Seeing Jesus Afresh, because we all need to do that. We all have our own experiences and our understanding of God, um, but we all need to move on and develop and grow in our faith as well. Um, A bishop, not one of our current bishops, said to me once that he could always tell when a clergy person had stopped growing in their faith just by looking at the bookcase. You can tell if somebody's settled and feel like they've arrived in their faith. And I hope we never do that. We all need to be growing. We all need to, there's always more of God to discover. And I hope that this series has helped you do that and will continue to help you do that. I'm going to talk a little bit about the transfiguration in a minute. You know, how we relate to God's glory, um, how that sort of experience impacts our lives, even if it's not happened directly to us, but because we've heard about somebody else's mountaintop experience. But I want to go somewhere slightly different first. I want to look at the reading we heard from 2 Peter, um, which is Peter talking about his experience of the transfiguration, but probably a couple of decades later. And he's writing to new Christians in Turkey. And these new Christians were people who knew the cost of their faith. They would have been considered traitors by their families, and they'd have been chucked out of their communities, and they knew the importance of having a faith that changed their lives because they will have really needed it. And Peter himself is a compelling eyewitness, as we've just heard in our reading. His life was totally changed by his experience of Jesus. Right from that first meeting when he was given a new name, through past the transfiguration onto the rest of his life, as a disciple of Jesus. And he says, we ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And he says that to those Christians in Turkey. But most importantly, he's speaking from his own experience, which is hugely powerful. And it's something that every single one of us can do. We can all talk to other people about our experience of God. And I wonder why so many of us find that difficult. It's partly a cultural thing, I think. Um, Sometimes, for those of us who are Brits, we have a great sort of reserve about talking about anything that's important to us. But I think it's more than that. A lot of Christians, I think, are are quite um, uncomfortable. It's quite self-conscious 
lack confidence in being able to speak about their faith. But I want to suggest that we all need to do it. And the great way of doing something is by having a go. Uh, They say that if you do something for 10,000 hours, you become proficient at it. Um, I'm nowhere near 10,000 hours sharing my faith. I I need to do more of it. I need to be more proficient. Personal spiritual experiences are hugely important in that. But we need to be able to talk about them, to encourage others, to build others up, and also to help us understand what's been going on. As, you, as I've already said, I go around quite a few different churches and it, it really depresses me when I see Christians who've perhaps been Christians most of their lives, all their lives, but they're still really uncomfortable, still really struggle with sharing their faith, even with other Christians, let alone people who don't share our faith. And if Peter had taken that line, we wouldn't be sitting here now. Who do you have to thank for sharing their faith with you? Is there somebody that you can think of who took the time and the trouble to just share a little bit about faith in Jesus with you? It might be a family member, it might have been a Sunday school teacher, it might have been somebody you'd never come across before, but whoever it was, take time to thank God for them. Because without their input, you wouldn't be here now. And also take the time to pray that you may be that person for somebody else that somebody else will give thanks for down the line. So I'm a big fan of people sharing their faith. I think we need to do more of it. I think we need to learn more creative and different ways of doing it. One size definitely does not fit all. The way that Will will share his faith will be different to the way I do it. The way you all do it will be different again because we're all unique. But we do it. Please do it. Take the opportunity where you can. So that's... Peter's experience and him sharing it, but I want to talk a little bit more now about the mountaintop experience that we hear described in the Transfiguration and the way that we perhaps have similar experiences. And I want to suggest that they're not just there for us to talk about, they're meant to make a difference to our lives. It is about seeing Jesus afresh, absolutely, but it's also about what changes as a result. Now, I'm old enough to have experienced quite a lot of the spiritual movements that you may well know more about than me through the last 30, 40 years. I'm a product of the charismatic renewal. I've um, come across the Toronto Blessing, Kansas City Prophets, you name it. There's lots of other things out there. Um, Some of them will stand the test of the time, some of them won't, and that's fine. That's the way it is. So I'm not saying those things are all wonderful in, in themselves. I've also had experiences of a more personal nature where I've known that God has been speaking to me and my experience of Jesus has been challenged as a result. I'm going to share one of them with you this morning. Um, This is going back to 1997. Some of you may not have been born then, but um, some of you will have been. But in 1997, my husband John and I had been approved as adoptive parents. We'd gone through all the systems and form-filling and interviews with social services, and we were waiting to be matched with a child or children. And we'd been waiting for about 18 months, and it felt like quite a long haul, and it was quite a tough journey. Uh, Towards the end of that year, we put our papers in to be considered for a little girl. And we knew, because our social worker told us, that more than 20 other couples had done exactly the same thing. 
And we didn't hold out much hope of being successful for that very reason, just laws of probability. And on the 18th of December 1997, the social work team were holding what they call a matching meeting, where they match the child with adoptive parents. But they were doing the precursor to that, which was a shortlisting meeting. And the idea was that they would knock the 20-plus couples down to usually four or five, who they would consider in more depth and more detail. Now, the night before that shortlisting meeting, I had a dream. This is not something that happens to me on a regular basis. But I had a dream that the social workers decided not to shortlist, but just to place the child with us. And uh, the following morning, I told my husband about the dream, and we agreed this was probably me just, you know, flights of fancy. It was wish fulfillment. Um, it was what we would love to have happened, but we needed to be patient and to trust God. And so, being dutiful Christians, that's what we did. Um, just before lunchtime that day, I got a phone call from our social worker. And she started the conversation by saying, You'll never guess what just happened. And I said, Yes, I will. And I told her about the dream. And she was totally gobsmacked because that's exactly what had happened. They decided not to shortlist and they decided that we were the right couple to place the child with. So Becky came to live with us about a month later. And those of you who get children through the more normal route, you get nine months to prepare. We didn't. We got, th we got about three weeks, which is quite tough. Um, and four years after that, her half-sister, Hannah, came to join us as well. And for me, that was a real mountaintop experience, having that dream. Um, I heard God speaking in a very clear way, and I reveled in it, and I did go on about it quite a lot at the time. But God did not give me that dream as an experience to turn into a memory or to impress people with in a sermon umpteen years later. God gave me that dream because he knew I would need it. And those of you who've got any experience of fostering or adoption will know that it's not always um, straightforward or easy. And there have been times when we really needed to know that God had placed the right children with us. And we go back to that dream as confirmation that these are God's children for us. And I'm delighted to say that um, our girls are now adults and... Uh, Beautiful, independent women who know how loved and valued they are by us. We still have really good relationships with both of them. And they know they're loved and valued by God as well. They struggle a bit more with church, but they, love, they know and love by God. They know that. The other outcome, which is slightly less expected perhaps, is that our social worker, who was an utter atheist, is now a regular at a local church. So it, there's an impact there as well. So spiritual mountaintop experiences are not there just for us to enjoy, certainly not there to try and impress other people. Seeing Jesus afresh in new ways and having a glimpse of that glory of God, it's got to have an impact on our lives if it's going to mean anything. And I want to suggest that it's all about the fruit that come as a result of that experience. And those... Um, charismatic experiences and others that I may mentioned before and probably loads of others that you could name. I'm not interested in what signs and wonders there were. I'm not in, marvelous though they can be. I'm not interested in 
um, what people said at the time, what I'm interested in, and what fruit came from them. How have Christians grown in unity and maturity? That's Ephesians 4. How have they, Christians grown in unity and maturity as a result of those experiences? Because that is the litmus test. That is the evidence that we should be interested in as Christians. So back to the transfiguration. We heard Mark's version this morning. And in Mark, the transfiguration comes as one of a series of announcements that precede the passion of Jesus. You may have considered the baptism of Jesus a few weeks ago and the words that were spoken over Jesus then and in this situation as well. Now these announcements, if you like, are spoiler alerts. They're, they're sneak previews of what's to come. And what is to come is the suffering and the death and resurrection of Jesus that you'll be thinking about as you journey through Lent and Easter. All part of God's great plan. You know, the mountaintop is there for a reason not just for the experience. So in the transfiguration, Jesus was given that reassurance of knowing that he was following in the footsteps of Moses and Elijah, who were the personification, if you like, of the, of the law and the prophets in the Old Testament. The reassurance of knowing that he's fulfilling God's plan right through from the beginning of time. But the greatest reassurance may well have been that voice from heaven, which we know Peter heard as well. This is my son, the beloved, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And I think that listen to him is something that we need to think about and dwell on. Because I don't think it's just for them. Those words of acceptance, of love and value that were spoken over Jesus then clearly made a mark on Peter as well because he's still talking about it decades later. And the words listen to him came just after the um, slightly strange suggestion that we've got to do something to commemorate this experience. And the suggestion is they put up shelters and so on. Now there may be different views as to what was going on there, but I think there's something there about how we, if we're not careful, we fossilise experiences of God. We we turn them into something concrete and physical, um, even if they're not um, physical reminders. We turn them into mausoleums to truth. It's something we talk about years later, but not because it's had an impact on us, but because we can't let go of that experience. It's about living the truth, not harking back to something that should have been implemented in our lives. Experiences are all about the fruits that come from them. They're not just there for themselves. And following on from the listen to him, one of the first things Jesus says to them after that is he tells them not to talk about the experience they've just had. Now, I would have struggled with that. I've just told you, you know, when I had that experience, that dream, I was out there telling people. I, I couldn't shut up about it. But Jesus says, no, don't say anything until I'm raised from the dead. And I think that's a really important thing. The reason is, it's all too easy to get caught up in the glory without recognising what the glory had to go through and to suffer. We cannot fully understand God's glory if we don't also understand the depths of the cross. 
We can't worship God as king of heaven and earth unless we also recognize and worship the king, the God who died. So the transfiguration and some of the other things you'll have been considering in this series are a way of preparing ourselves, preparing the way for the suffering, the death and the resurrection of the Son of God himself, which is the fulfillment of God's plan. So that's where we're going into Lent, to look at what the grace and the glory of God had to face. The word made flesh, the glory and the image of God crucified like a common criminal. Crucified so that we could be restored to God because he loves us. And at the end of the day, that's what all these experiences are about because God loves us. That's what it should always draw us towards and no experience of God can ever supersede that. So my prayer for you and for me as we approach Lent this year Maybe your first Lent, maybe your 50th or your 80th. That doesn't matter. We all approach it afresh this year. May we recognise that our experiences of him must lead to changed lives. And, to go back to where we started, a desire to proclaim that truth to others, as it did for Peter. Peter.